on marriage. So this is lesson number nine in our series on marriage. And I hope that for those who've not, who are not married, that the gospel principles we've talked about have been helpful to you in thinking about other relationships in your life, whether it be church or family, brothers, sisters, uh, friends, all of that. Many of, this, many of these principles apply to those realms of life. But today, what I want to talk about, I think this is a fitting way to end, I want to talk about protecting, protecting our marriage. Um, every July 4th, what holiday do we celebrate as a country? Independence Day, yeah, that's the, that's the real name for it. I always call it 4th of July, but really, you're right, Faith, it is Independence Day, and sometimes we forget that Independence Day, um, really, that's the day that they signed, if I remember right, the Declaration of Independence, but there are a lot of battles that had to be fought to fight for that independence, right? And there's a lot of battles that are, that are famous we could talk about, um, but one of the more famous ones was the successful defense of the troops at the Battle of Saratoga, the Battle of Saratoga. There's a painting that depicts the Battle of Saratoga here. The American troops uh, held a fortress-like position at the top of the hill there uh, that was a strategic advantage for them, but the British knew they needed to, they needed to demolish this fortress and penetrate this line of defense in order for them to cut off supply and trade routes. Really in war, that's the way that you knock your opponent down at the knees. You don't just kill a bunch of bad guys. You got to cut off their supplies and eventually starve them out essentially. And so that's what they were trying to do. And it was at this battle that a general successfully led the American troops to um, a successful defense and holding their position through several daring counterattacks. You might know him. His name is Benedict Arnold. Now, this is before he defected and went over to the other side and was a spy for them. He, before that, was a very accomplished general that did a lot for America. And what happened because of that success at Saratoga, um, it allowed the Americans to have more confidence because in many ways, they were getting their butt whooped, okay? But not only that, what you may not remember about the, the Revolutionary War is what really was the turning point in the war is that this newly forming nation began to enlist the help of other allies who had other interests in mind, and that's when they enlisted the help of France, one of the other world powerhouses, because of the resounding victory here at the Battle of Saratoga, I think what this battle illustrates for us is also true in marriage. It's the old saying. What do they say? The best offense is what? A good defense, right? Our chiefs need to hear about that, right? They just need a better offense maybe sometimes. Not lining up offsides, right, Rick? In marriage, you need a good defense because the reality is, is that Satan is waging war against the home. He is attacking your family. And while you think it's your wife attacking you or your husband attacking you, ultimately we know this, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and high places. We are in effect right now on defense against the attacks of Satan. 
So this morning, what I want to close out our series is I want to show you, unless in case maybe you've forgotten, why your marriage is worth protecting. And then I want to show you how prayer is our primary defense mechanism for our marriages. So why is your marriage worth protecting? Number one, your marriage is worth protecting because it was meant to illustrate the beauty of the gospel. I think sometimes we forget that in Ephesians 5, it gives us a lot of practical advice about marriage, right? What is, in Ephesians 5, what does Paul instruct husbands to do, men? To love your wives. Ladies, in Ephesians 5, what does Paul instruct the wife to do? Oh, come on. We know this. Ladies, you're allowed to speak in church. I, I won't throw a rock at you, I promise. What, what, is, what does God tell the wife to do in her marital relationship in Ephesians 5? I'm sorry, Faith? Not quite, although it is part of love. Are we not saying it because we disagree with the Bible? I don't know. Miss Ruth? Submit, that's right, right. A marital veteran, right? Uh, answering the question for us. That is in the Bible, by the way. Submission is. But Ephesians 5 is not just about practical advice for marriage. We won't really understand Ephesians 5 unless we get the last crescendo, really, of the passage. And it's verses 31 and 32. For this cause, he quotes Genesis, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined in his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Now pay attention to this verse. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. And what Paul unlocks there is that all along in the Bible, and you see this in the Old Testament, that God gave his people the gift of marriage to help them better wrap their minds around their relationship to God, right? Notice this, men. We are to love our wives as what? Christ loved the church. And women, we are to submit, you, not we, you are to submit to your husband as unto whom? The Lord. Do we see that, that here is this illustration of marriage? The husband is meant to illustrate the sacrificial, selfless giving love of Christ, and the woman's submission is meant to illustrate the obedience and submission of the church. Now, I'm not saying that this submission means, you know, you're, you can just let an abusive man walk all over you and never say a thing uh, to correct your husband. That's not what that passage is about. Obviously, every illustration has its limitations, doesn't it, right? And so what we recognize in this passage is that your marriage, listen very closely, your marriage is a living, breathing illustration of the gospel that you are supposed to preach to the world. People should look at your marriage and see this love of Christ fulfilled in your love for your spouse. Your submission, people are supposed to see, ladies, as they look at you and say, why on earth would you uh, um, live with a guy like that and, 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 and be so humble with a guy like that who maybe doesn't always deserve it, right? We live in a culture, don't we, that doesn't really know why marriages aren't lasting long anymore. They just know that that's a problem. They can't figure out why. And yet our marriages are supposed to be a testimony to God's grace in his gospel. 
Your marriage is meant to illustrate the gospel. That's why you need to protect it. Because a marriage that is falling apart, listen, is now not shining the light of the gospel. And wouldn't we agree that in our culture today, healthy, long-lasting marriages do shine a light? Would we agree with that? I mean, just the fact that you survive for a couple of decades is, is a surprise to most people, right? And let alone if you're still married and it's healthy and it's loving and it's uh, mutual respect in between two of you, that is a huge testimony of the gospel. That's why we need to protect our marriage because it protects our testimony. We also need to protect our marriage because marriage is meant to be for a lifetime, right? We talked about that in 1 Corinthians 7 a few weeks ago. God intends for you to be with your spouse unless uh, some other circumstances pop up for a lifetime. It's not just Paul who saw it this way. Jesus said, and the, the line that most ministers repeat at, at any wedding, what do they say, Robert? What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's Jesus who said that. What is he saying? He's saying that it is not our job to break up a marriage that heaven created. Ideally, right? There's obviously certain circumstances that are cause for that. But if marriage is for a lifetime, just the logically, right? If marriage is meant to be for a lifetime and you have to be with this person for a lifetime, logically, logically, that means you should invest in your marriage. Logically speaking, your marriage is the best relationship to invest in. Every relationship on earth is not going to return as much as an investment in your marriage. Because here's the truth. Making your spouse happy and spiritually healthy is a far better investment than even making your boss happy. And sometimes the two can compete, right? You're going to be with your spouse longer than your kids, and so a lot of times it's easy to pour all of our energy into our kids, and kids take a lot of energy, and then they have nothing left over for our spouse. This is true of husbands and wives, but what we don't realize in the moment when we're falling into that trap is these kids are going to be gone, and I'm still going to be stuck with this person. So if I've neglected them for 18 plus years, we're going to have a lot of scraps to piece together after the kids leave the home. And that's why divorce rates are so high after kids leave the home. Because at some point, some marriages are like, well, we just stuck it out for our kids. And now that they're gone, we've got no reason to stay together. You're gonna be with your spouse longer than you'll have a relationship with your own parents. And that's why when there's conflict vertically, I'm not saying that you just unilaterally take one side and, and, and not address the sin of your own spouse if there's conflict with their parents, but so often, unintentionally, uh, over-attachment to parents, whether it's, it's coming from the parent down or the kid up, can really seek damage on the marriage because we don't recognize, like, I, I'm really close to my mom, but I should be really close to my husband because that's a better investment than God called me to right? Think about this. A lot of, there's, there's some stuff out there that comes with a lifetime warranty. I don't know if you have owned anything like that that has a lifetime warranty. Shelby and I, when we first got uh, married, uh, my mom has progressively over the years bought us one or two things for Christmas from Cutco. Great knives. Uh, they have a lifetime warranty on their knives. But every lifetime warranty has some conditions, doesn't it? 
right? They don't guarantee your kitchen paring knife if you use your paring knife as a screwdriver, right? They, they're not going to guarantee that because it's not their fault if you have a chip in your knife after using it as a screwdriver, right? And, and I think the same is true for our marriages. Our marriages are supposed to have a lifetime warranty, but that requires proper care. It requires proper care. And here's what we need to recognize, that, that we are not protecting our marriages from some big blow up. No, what we are protecting our marriages from is erosion, not explosion. Meaning that, that when I say erosion, erosion often happens very slowly and in small increments over time. Therefore, it cannot be detected often with the naked eye, right? Like you're, you're not noticing how the, the, you know, if you lived in California, you're not noticing how the, the shoreline moves up a, an inch a year or something like that. You don't see that right? And you don't see often the erosion that's taking place in your marriage until big gaps have formed, you know? Um, I, was, I was getting someone, uh, finally Thrasher came out, you recommended Thrasher to me, to look at that piece of concrete that's tilted uh, in front of the steps. How many of you all know what I'm talking about? It's like this and all the water pools by the step. Well, if, before we painted, you could see literally a gap there. Well, that didn't all happen overnight, did it? Where the, the concrete tilted and left a couple inch gap against the building it slowly, slowly, slowly settled. And now you look back, however many years later, who knows how long that concrete's been there, but you look back and you're like, that's several inches of drop that's happened there, and uh, we didn't even notice it while it was happening, right? And the same thing is true with your marriage, that as it erodes away, it's hard to see what's happening. It happens really in 10,000 little steps, the erosion in our marriage does. They take place when we are asleep, when we're not vigilant, when we're not guarding. And so what we need to do is we need to have a constant state of awareness. Isn't this how Peter talked about being on guard against Satan? Be sober. What's sober mean? It doesn't mean not drunk. It means aware, alert. Be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, walketh about as a lion, seeking whom he may devour. If Peter says that about all of life, certainly that's the attitude we should take to our marriages. We should be hyper alert. So the question is then, how do we fight for our marriages, right? Well, I would submit to you this morning, one of your primary defense weapons is the powerful tool of prayer. The powerful tool of prayer. I want you to see, I want you to listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Here's what Paul says. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Why do we need to pray? Because you and I are not capable of producing a good marriage on our own. I don't know about you, but at least one time or two, I've thought in this series, this is asking a lot. This is a lot of work. You're telling me, pastor, that I need to focus on the kingdom of God. I need to regularly practice confession. I need to regularly give out forgiveness. I need to water seeds in my marriage. I need to be building trust actively with my spouse. I need to be nurturing love in my heart towards them. And then I need to be dealing with differences I don't know about you, but it, we should stand back from the Bible's commands and say, who is sufficient for this? Who is sufficient for this type of task and this type of work? 
It should humble us. If it doesn't, we either overestimate our ability in the flesh or we underestimate what the Bible's calling us to do. When we look at what the Bible says, we ought to be humbled. You might say, nobody can do all that. Well, guess what? That is the point. That is the point. Someone once said that God never calls you to do something you're unable to do. False. God calls you to do things you can't do all the time. Read the Old Testament. How many Old Testament heroes are like, I can't do this, God. Elijah sitting under a juniper tree. I can't go on anymore. God calls us to do things we're unable to do all the time, and that is the point. Why? Marriage, really any relationship, is meant to expose your heart to expose your sin and your weaknesses. Marriage is meant to bring you to the end of yourself because you recognize you can't do it on your own. That's what marriage is meant to do. Quite literally, marriage is meant to bring you to your knees in prayer. That's why we need prayer. Because at the moment when we think, I don't think I can do this, you are in a good place. That's a scary place, but that's a good place. When you think, I don't know how to get through to my husband, he's got a thick skull. When you think, men, I don't know how I can lead her into this thing, or I don't know how we're gonna be able to communicate peacefully. We always seem to argue about that subject. You're in a good place. You're in a good place because now you're recognizing you can't do it in your own power. And what the Bible's really clear about is that weakness is really our true source of strength isn't it? That's what Paul said. That weakness reminds us of the resources that are available in God. This is what Paul said when he was brought to his knees in dealing with a certain situation, the thorn in the flesh. Some say it was a physical ailment. I think it's the conflict in the church at Corinth that crushed his soul. Nonetheless, here's what he said. He's quoting what God says to him in his prayer. He said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then here's Paul's conclusion on the matter. Gladly, therefore, I will rather glory in my infirmities or my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Here's the dynamic Paul reveals there in that verse. Christ's power rests on you as you acknowledge your weakness. That weakness is the true source of our strength. Ironically, the more powerful you try to be in your own power, the weaker you are. The more weak you are and dependent on Christ you are, the more powerful you become. So here's the question then, okay? If prayer is our way of protecting our marriage, pastor, what do I pray? What do I say? Well, I want want you to think about this and use the Lord's prayer as a model for praying for your marriage. If you don't know what to pray, you don't know how to pray, the Lord's prayer is a really great starting point. It's not just a good starting point for marriage prayers, but for anything else. So let me break this down phrase by phrase. 
Our Father, which art in heaven. What do we get from that? It reminds us that God is in charge and he cares. Right? Isn't that the two ideas that come across in the word father? What is a father? Or at least his father should be in charge. Sovereign. Right? But a father is not just a power figure. Right? A father is a power figure who is acting in your best interest. Or at least that's how it should be. I know not all of us had fathers like that. But, you know, we read the Bible enough. We know that's the type of father God is. Why is prayer for our marriage beneficial? Because it reminds us, as we lift our eyes toward heaven, that God is above everything. He's in heaven. So all the mess that's here on earth, God has a higher view on it. The things that horizontally to you look towering, when you're even up in an airplane, they look tiny, don't they? Right? And imagine a God who is sovereign and up in heaven, how seemingly small those things that feel impossible to you are. And while the Father is in heaven and he's bigger than anything you're facing, here's the truth. God is still a father. There's concerns that occupy the minds of our children that as parents were like, come on. You know, right now, Natalie is very stressed because I think it was last Christmas, she got like a little, I, it's one of the toys I hate, you know, so I'm kind of happy it's broken. But it's, a, it's like a karaoke jukebox thing, right? You could imagine, you know, every parent's favorite toy, not, is a loud one, right? So she came to me last night. She's very concerned. Dad, can you please try and fix this toy? It is just really, it's really gripping her heart that her little karaoke jukebox is broken, you know what? She's got a thousand other toys. You know, it's easy for me to just say, move on with your life, kid. It's not a big deal. You're going to get more toys in seven days, you know? You're not going to care about your karaoke jukebox then. But as a father, what do we want to do? Or mothers, we want to help. We want to help. We don't mind listening. We don't mind taking care of things that seem big to our kids. We want the best for our kids. And I think a lot of marriages, they start eroding because they forgot their father long before they forgot about their spouse. They may not leave church, but they forget that God is sovereign and he is there to help. That's not true for every marriage. What about this prayer? What's the next prayer? Hallowed be thy name right? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This part of the Lord's prayer shows us that God's purpose for your marriage is bigger than your own. It reminds us that, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that what unifies your marriage is not sameness. Because when you think that sameness unifies your marriage, what you're doing is one person is advocating for their kingdom, right? My kingdom, my will be done. But what God calls us to in our sanctification and what God calls us to to find unity in our differences is to recognize his kingdom that is big enough to unify you and your spouse. Prayer calls us 
to remind ourselves that we are to live lives of holiness. That word hallowed is a verb form of holiness. Let your name be holy. Well, how do we let God's name be holy? We holify is really the idea there, his name by our holiness. And so God's will for our marriage is holiness. And that's the best starting point to defend your marriage is to focus on living out God's will rather than advocating for your own will. When two spouses, remember the first or second lesson we talked about this? When two spouses mutually are pursuing God, what happens? They get closer. When one spouse is pursuing the Lord, it doesn't really have as much of an effect. But when both are pursuing God, they thereby glow grow closer. Here's the next part. Give us this day our daily bread. Hey, in marriage, we need to see ourselves as needy. There's two things that this part of the Lord's Prayer reminds us of. It reminds us of our need of daily sustenance. Shows you how poor society was. The way we operate here is is weekly or bi-weekly or monthly bread, right? That's how often we get paid in, I think, all of our jobs here. But in their day, it was a day-to-day life. But So we look to God recognizing that we have daily needs. You may not like this, but this is the reality. And you, you will struggle in your walk with the Lord if you don't recognize you are a needy person. You are a needy person, right? You are not a low-maintenance creature. You ever had a high-maintenance pet? You know what I'm talking about? That's why, you know, we're, we're slow to get a pet because we don't want the high-maintenance stuff, right? We're not ready to commit to that yet. But you're not a low-maintenance creature. You're a high-maintenance creature. But what this prayer also reminds us of is that, yes, we are needy, but we also have a bread giver. We are in need of daily bread, but we have a daily bread giver. We have a God who is the one who has promised to meet our needs. And here's what you need to remember. This will help your marriage. This will protect your marriage. God did not give you a spouse to meet your needs. When you look to a spouse to meet your deepest needs, you will be disappointed. Now, they may, they may work for a while, but what you'll find out is that person is not adequate enough right? They cannot stave off all of your insecurities. They will not always be there for you because they're dummies too, and they mess up too, and they sin too, and they're selfish too. No, we don't look to our spouse to provide us our daily affirmation and nurse our insecurities. We look to Christ to affirm us in our identity and him. We don't look to our spouse to provide us peace because as we celebrate at Christmas time, Christ came. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. We need Christ's daily sustenance. So as we pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We ought to pray something like this. God, would you today help me to find my needs met in you rather than my spouse? Because so many frustrations in marriage boil over from that. What's the next part of the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does this prayer remind us of? 
reminds us that we have to show the same grace we've received. As we talked about earlier, marriage is a daily cancellation of debts, isn't it? Because of how tightly bound our relationship is, we share a house, we share a bedroom, we share checking accounts, hopefully. We share everything, right? That's going to create cause for offenses. And the only healthy way to work through marriage is to cancel those debts rather than to hang on to them. But the Lord's Prayer, here's what it does. It anchors our minds to the reminder that we don't extend debt cancellation because they deserve it. That's not love, right? Love is not based on merit. We extend debt cancellation because we recognize Christ has canceled our debts. And he's canceled infinitely more than your husband or wife could ever commit against you. And therefore, because God is continually reconciling us to himself, what does that mean? He's drawing us. He's pulling us in. That's what God's trying to do with some of you today. He wants to pull you in a little closer through the preaching of the word. As you sing to him, God wants to pull you in a little bit closer. And so in marriage, here's what that reminds us of. Because we're like, God, why are you pulling me closer? I don't want to be around you. I'm mad at you. I'm enjoying my sin over here. And marriage reminds us that, hey, we may have issues, we may, we may fight, but let's pull them in a little closer. Let's forgive that debt and pull them in a little closer because Christ is doing the same for us. The Lord's Prayer reminds us that it is a contradiction for you to go in prayer and say, Lord, would you please forgive me? And then to hold a grudge against someone. I wonder if people who struggle with bitterness and resentment, it's because they don't often hear the sound of their own voice saying, God, would you please forgive me? They don't themselves have a regular habit of confession. And so that's why, because they're not used to hearing the sound of their own neediness and need of forgiveness in their own ears, that's why it's so easy for them to, to hold debts against people. Because they're not dealing with their debts vertically. What, is, what else does the Lord's Prayer say? It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our greatest problem is our evil. Our greatest problem is not our spouse. Our greatest problem is not the struggle that our marriage is in right now because of some kid issues or health issues or money issues. That's not your struggle. That is not ultimately what is creating the problems in your marriage. Your problems are the result of your indwelling sin. If you get nothing else, out of the Bible's teaching on marriage, this is what you need to recognize. Your marital problems are the result of your personal sin. If you blame it on the job, you'll never be able to fix that. If you blame it on your health, you'll never be able to fix that. If you blame it on the kids, you're not really gonna be able to fix that. But when you place the real blame on your evil, your sin, now we can deal with something because we serve a Christ who rose in victory over, dead, the de over death and sin. 
Now we've got a solution here, right? And so what we need to recognize is that difficult children don't hurt our marriages. Tight financial budgets don't hurt our marriages, right? Debilitating diseases don't even have to hurt our marriages. They may add stress, but here's what we remember, that our sinful responses are much like what happens when you put a tea bag in water. You got a cup of hot water and you put a tea bag in it. What does the hot water do? It pulls the flavor from the contents of the bag. What a lot of us do is we're blaming the hot water for the flavor of the tea. But all the hot water is doing, the hot water in your life, it's just pulling out what's here. It's just pulling out what's here. Man, I just, you know, if we, if we had more money tomorrow, it would, have really, it would really help our marriage. No. No, your lack of money is revealing the stuff that was in your heart prior to that problem. Money don't fix your heart. <laughs> Sorry. None of that fixes your heart. And so we pray, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's the last thing. We pray yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And what that reminds us of is that life is not about you. Life is not about you. Prayer reminds you that the center of your universe is a place reserved for God and God alone. It reminds you that real peace, satisfaction, contentment come when you live for a greater glory than your own. What does sin do? Sin puts us in the center. But God calls us to put him in the center. And so this morning, what I want you to be reminded of as you fight to defend your marriage, as you anchor the battle of Saratoga, as you wrestle against principalities and powers, I want you to be reminded of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 41 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Let's pray this morning. Father, we ask for your grace and help. We know, God, that the devil wants to ruin marriages. He did that from the very beginning. He tempted Eve to step outside of the authority of her husband, and he tempted Adam to sit by passively and not deal with the evil that had crept in to your garden. And Lord, he's doing the same thing today. I pray Lord, that we would embrace your promise that you'll be with us and you will uphold us. Lord, I pray that you would grant us better vigilance in our lives. God, we would recognize that the roaring lion of the devil is looking to devour our marriage. Doesn't matter how long we've been married, he wants to devour it. And so, Lord, there's no better investment than to protect our marriage. I pray, God, that you would help us to take the next right step to protect it. And Lord, today what we focus on is just to pray. Lord, help us to regularly pray 
for our marriage. Maybe we pray often about health needs and other things, but Lord, help us to think about praying for that category, to pray for our marriage, to pray that you'd protect it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.